Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. I'm your host for today, Iona Italia. I'm going to begin, Tom, by reading a passage from your memoir, Hook, Line and Sinner, an unexpected memoir, which came out in August um, with Penguin Random House Australia. Congratulations, Thank by you the so way. Much. And I've just written a review for that, uh, of that for Quillette. So I think that will probably be out by the time this podcast is out. So do go and take a look for that. I'm going to begin by reading a uh very short chapter, it's just a couple of pages, which I think um, gives a good illustration of the, I would say, the most frequent tone in the book. It's not the only tone that you strike in the book, but it's one of the most frequent ways in which you talk about things. And it's very typical also, I feel, of your general attitude to life. Anyway, this chapter is called Coffee in the Village. In the colder months, the Manhattan wind chill can be bitter, assailing your face with a crisp frost, making its way through gaps in clothes and chilling skin. Strolling down MacDougall Street in Greenwich Village, wearing only a polyester T-shirt that cushioned the straps from my prosthetic arms, my friend and I took refuge in a cafe. The kitsch and bohemian interior proved to be more warming than it had appeared from outside. A couple of tables down from us were a group of four or five middle-aged women, well-dressed with amiable expressions on their faces. I noticed them glance at me more than once, but since I'd started sporting hooks for hands, this was something I'd become accustomed to. One of them went to the counter to pay their bill, and on her way back to the table brushed past me. She leant down and whispered into my ear, "'Thank you for your service.' confused. My first thought was, I don't work here. She whisked herself away as quickly as she'd arrived. After a moment, I realised she thought I'd served in the military. Feeling slightly awkward, my friend and I decided to pay our bill and leave. But approaching the counter, we were informed that the woman had paid for our coffees. This left me with quite the conundrum. Although it was a lovely gesture, it was based on a misunderstanding. I was not a soldier and had not sacrificed anything for her country. But there was no way I could handle the awkward situation of telling her I wasn't who she thought I was. It seemed unnecessary anyway. It's not like I could have paid for my own coffee and asked the waiter to refund her. I realised that all she wanted was to do something nice for someone seemingly less fortunate than herself although I didn't regard myself as less fortunate than her by any means, I began to imagine what that conversation would have looked like, and it didn't end with a fuzzy feeling for her. The other option would have been simply to accept the gift and effectively lie by omission, preserving her sense of altruism. Not to mention, was I making assumptions about her? I believed she was genuine and doing her best to be a good person, and that any conversation between us about her having made a false assumption would embarrass her in front of her friends. But perhaps it didn't matter to her whether I'd served in the military. This was all too much cognition over a fucking cup of coffee. There was only one way out, the best course of action I could think of for everyone concerned. As I was leaving the cafe for the chill of the surrounding seats, I looked over to her table, gave a short, genuine nod and said thank you for your service ma'am <laughs> I think you probably should have read the audiobook not me because <laughs> you do have a very distinctive accent we've spoken about that before it's kind of British but not um, yes and you know you, you enunciate quite well you're quite eloquent so I think we, we should do a second version of this book where you <laughs> record the audiobook and we'll see which one sells better Well, it would be very confusing because I think the Australian nature of it is really important. And Mm. I, I definitely, I can't even attempt, I don't even know where to start 
doing an Australian accent. So. Well, no, that's that that would run counter <laughs> to the point of actually it needs to be in your accent. Yeah, I I mean I spent my early years in Pakistan, so I have a slightly odd um, mix of mix of accents going on. Um, I was an English native speaker, but because I learned English in a non non English speaking country, I have a slightly fucked up accent. <laughs> It's nice. I told you, didn't I? I? I wasn't sure whether I did tell you, but I ran into uh, somebody in an airport in, I think it was in San Francisco or something, who had an accent almost exactly like yours. And after speaking to her for a couple of minutes, uh, she revealed that she actually grew up in Pakistan as well. Oh, yes, you told yeah. me that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I won't let you do what you did to me last time I interviewed you, which is start interviewing me instead. <laughs> <laughs> But why not? <laughs> well, listeners don't want to hear about me. They're interested in you. Maybe you could start by just relating the basic story of how you came to have your hooks, your prosthetic legs, what happened to you. Yeah, so in a nutshell, um, I was a, just a regular able-bodied kid up until the age of 19, and then I contracted something called meningococcal disease, which is not something I'd necessarily recommend. Uh, but it left me in hospital for about a year and a half, uh, and it causes septicemia, and so, and that causes gangrene, of which, of course, there are a lot of pirate references in my life. Um, but then you have to start amputating limbs to stop that from spreading. So I lost both my legs be- below the knee, um, just a bit below the knee, and then both arms at the elbow. And so the next year and a half was spent trying to, you know, regain independence using prosthetics, walk again uh, with prosthetic legs, and use some form of adaptive prosthetic arm or hand to do everything else, of which I chose hooks, um, mainly for aesthetic purposes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the book, just to make it clear to everyone, the memoir really goes into a lot of detail about the ordeal that you went through. And there are, in a sense, two parts to the um, memoir. The first part is when you were acutely ill with a meningococcal and you're placed in an artificial coma. Um, your descriptions of how it felt coming out of that were quite harrowing. Mm. Um, tell me a little, just a little bit more about that period of your life. Yeah, it's a difficult period for me to describe. And actually, when I was writing it, it was quite a challenge because I was forced to try to recall things that are admittedly hazy during that mm. period. But I was in a coma for a couple of weeks or so, something like that. And um, slipping out of it is not uh, like an aha moment. It's very much something that you uh, iteratively regain consciousness and sometimes your mind plays tricks on you. And so I remember hearing things before I could see things. And I remember the distinction between uh, hearing people talk to me or talk about me because the intonation and the tone was very distinctive and different. Mm, mm. And I think that was the time that I knew something was wrong and that I wasn't back at home or something like that or dreaming, Mm, you know, for that mm. matter. Um, And then, yeah, slowly sliding back into lucidity and uh, I remember hearing my mother's voice was one of the first familiar voices that I heard. Um, And, you know, there was a certain tone to it. Everybody knows their mother's voice so well that you can sort of pick what they're thinking uh, without even hearing what's being said, you know. And so I, I could detect the concern and a bit of sadness in her voice. And so I knew something was probably seriously wrong. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Even though you told your father to not bother coming because you were going to be fine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, a typical 19-year-old boy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I even I told my stepsister not to come and take me to a doctor. My <laughs> sister flew. I mean, it kind of was in a way. It's just mm. Um, mm. I, I think I described it recently as, a, you know, just a bad haircut that doesn't grow back. Um, apparently that's how I described it to someone because someone wrote that. But, um, yeah, at the time it was just, you know, I was a 19-year-old boy and I, I didn't think that anything serious like that would, would ever happen to someone like me. It's always something that you hear about happening to other people, mm. Mm. Um, which is an interesting concept when you think about it. Yeah. yeah, you're the only person I know who has more serious disability. I have a couple of friends who have cerebral palsy, but mm. um, uh, not not very severe forms of CP. Um, 
But yeah, I think I don't know anybody else personally. And I was wondering this morning, um, one of the things in the memoir, and we will get on to this, is how extraordinarily positive you are about things. Not in a Pollyannish way. So because you're quite a louche character, you smoke and drink and take drugs and stay out late and party and things, and you were a DJ. Mm. Um, uh, that kind of, that prevents the prevents the book and prevents your story from being too saccharine. Mm. You're not Andrew Huberman. You know, <laughs> we shouldn't imitate your daily routine or anything like that. Um, you definitely don't want to imitate my daily routine. <laughs> there is no fucking routine. It's just a chaos. So. Yeah, and you're kind of grumpy and cantankerous. And all Thank of that, that is really good because otherwise it would be sickening because it's so – the glass is so half full whenever you're – Every glass you look at is so is not just half full, but positively overflowing. You take a really, really positive attitude towards things. Um, in fact, in our last interview, you actually said you spend a lot of time thinking about the advantages of um, that have accrued you from being disabled, and we'll talk about that later. But I wonder um, how hard fought that attitude was, um, whether. There was a period there where um, you felt much um, um, much more overwhelmed by kind of sadness or resentfulness or anger or grief or any of those emotions. And um, whether what you feel, if, if that was the case, what you feel the turning point was. Yes, there definitely was a period like that. And I, I remember it being closely tied to being in a lot of physical pain. Uh, I think, you know, the first, I'd say six months at least after contracting the disease. And so during the period of like amputations of limbs and I had a lot of wounds all over my body, like 80% of my body. And every day they would have to, the dressings on that would have to be changed. And it was a, it was a level of pain that I didn't actually know existed. I didn't, Mm. (laughs) you know, it was that you know, if your pain could be described between a zero and a ten uh, day to day, I didn't know. And this this was like a hundred or something like that. So it was just mm. and and it's really hard not to be depressed at that point. And also, you know, it's sometimes difficult without a roadmap of how things are going to move forward. Like you just said, you didn't have many friends with disabilities, and I certainly didn't either. I probably knew the least about people with disabilities of anyone on the planet. And so when I was going to lose my legs, I didn't even know if I could walk. Like, do people walk with two prosthetic legs or is it only one? Or would I be in a wheelchair or what? You know, there's so many questions. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you're just trying to stay alive like I I was. And so all of that could have been dealt with later, I guess. And the mental fortitude, I think, was only allowed to germinate once – the extreme pain had started to dissipate. And um, and it's an iterative process as well because it relies very much on your ability to overcome very small challenges. So, you know, if you take a step in the right direction, maybe sometimes figuratively and literally, uh, you can feel better about it mentally. And then that mental fortitude, that small iterative part that you've gained that day can help you to do better physically the next day. And it, it becomes a positive feedback loop. Uh, I'm sure there was an alternate um, fate in which it could have become a negative feedback loop. Mm. And if you were to ask me exactly why it didn't become that, I, to be completely honest, I don't really know. Mm. Um, I know through a lot of reading that I've done, it's suggested that more than half of our sort of subjective well-being and happiness is probably heritable and that you know, we, we might be in a genetic position to be able to reach a, a homeostasis better of of happiness or something like mm-hmm. that, positivity, I guess. So I can't discount that. Um, and then the rest of it is seemingly up to us, but also not up to us at all either because you're the culmination <laughs> of everybody that surrounds you, uh, not just the country that you're in. For me, I mean – amazingly fortunate to be in Australia where not only was I seen to so quickly and able to live 
but then put through a medical system um, that took the bill for it and continues to provide me with prosthetics and anything I need for having this disability, there are many countries around the world that we wouldn't be having this conversation Mm -hmm. if the Mm -hmm. same thing happened to me there. Yeah. So, you know, that is an element of extreme fortune. Having a really good network of friends and family around me is extreme fortune. And uh, then probably my genetics. So I I can maybe take credit for about 4 to 6% of my current disposition, Mm. uh, such that it's probably not even worth us discussing it. Yeah, I feel as though credit and blame is the wrong way of looking at it. But Mm, although I think that we, um, on a day-to-day basis, obviously I, I... behave as though I have free will. I feel like I have free will. There's no other way of... You have you know, to do it, right? You have to. Yeah, There's you have to lie to yourself you every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because otherwise um, what... Actually, no, you can't escape it. I thought about this You can't escape before. it, yeah. absolutely because not. Because even if you choose to do nothing as a result, that's a choice. <laughs> of yeah, t- yeah, yeah, yeah. And in any case, it's... Um, I think when they asked Christopher Hitchens about the question of free will, they said, do you believe in free will? And he said... Of course, I believe in free will. I have no choice in the matter. Yeah. I can't help but believe in it. Yeah. And so on a basic level, I do believe in free will. But on a kind of deeper level, I just think it's all luck all the way down. Mm. So you had a mixture of of bad luck in having the meningococcal. And of, it would be better if you hadn't ha- if that hadn't happened to you. But, <laughs> well, probably. But, you know... It's hard to tell because, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's difficult to be asked to comment on an alternate universe, <laughs> yes, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, I mean? exactly. And maybe since your life is quite happy now, uh, maybe that wouldn't have happened, but your life would be unhappy. Many people, I mean, I know many people who have had no serious illness or disability who are very, who are very unhappy. Mm. Um, so who knows, you know? Um, and uh but also uh, part of the luck was your in your personality and i think you were probably born with that that's my sense maybe yeah i i think my, well from reports of my friends my personality hasn't changed mm. that's mm. that's the best way i can judge it because it's very difficult to to judge subjectively i think yeah yeah um but then again all experiences shape us to an extent so i mean it would have maybe be been the same at a base level but had evolved, you know, due to its environment, you know, much like Surely you know, it would have evolved yeah. differently. Yeah. Mm. I think it's um I mean one thing is that you can't avoid being noticed. Mm. Yeah, that's right, yeah. You can't just blend in. No, um. that's right. I would be the worst. I remember watching uh what was it? Um, I, I, you know, you get some YouTube spiral and you're just watching sort of bullshit videos that aren't even related to your yeah. <laughs> interests or whatever it is. And I, was, I ended up watching this video of a guy who was talking about, I think he was like a prepper or something. And he was talking about how to become a gray man, you know, which is somebody who blends into the crowd mm. such that, you know, if the apocalypse were to happen and, you know, you had to get out and like bug out somewhere to be unnoticed. I'm watching this video and I'm like, oh, it's interesting, you know, the way that he's going about this. And then I thought to myself, like, this is not an option for me ever. Like, yeah. I'm not that it, yeah. I was wanting to do that. This is like the piano. Like, n- neither of those things are happening. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think if you had been a very shy and introverted person and someone who is uncomfortable being the center of attention, um, that would have been it would have been much more difficult yeah probably um i think it would also be more difficult for a woman um, mm, yes absolutely so yeah. uh, you know compensating for your physical appearance through which is quite shocking when when on first sight now it just doesn't i mean i'm not i'm not kind of really seeing anything mm. Unusual because mm. I'm used to how you look and the eye adjusts very quickly, surprisingly quickly. Yeah. But on first sight, it's kind of a shock. But you compensate for that by being uh, immensely charming. It's like a sleight of hand, isn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is ironic in a way. You manipulate people's sec- hook. second impression. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can't do anything about the first impression, mm. but you can manipulate their second and subsequent impressions. And... I think that 
that would be more difficult for a woman. A woman would be more harshly judged for uh, on the appearance. Yeah. And also, I think that it would be um, it would be a little bit of a wasted opportunity if you were less intelligent and articulate, because in a, a sense you yeah, because you have the microphone in. Yeah. Um, if you have something to say, people are going to listen to you. Um, you can get their attention just mm. from the way that you look, uh, from your prosthetics, um, and also from the story that you have. Um, and luckily, you do have you do have really interesting things to say. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I think that was one of the the reflections that I struggled with a lot when writing the book was I was forced to. Uh, really put under the microscope, you know, the extent to which I have an effect on people in the vein of what you just suggested. And there's a double-edged sword there, which is that, uh, yeah, you're right, uh, people notice me because mm. of the hooks and the scars and all that sort of stuff. Um, but sometimes my problem is getting them to look past that. And so one of the ideas that I discussed in the book was, you know, I became a DJ uh, and... When you're DJing with hooks, uh, it gets a lot of interest from people. Mm, uh, mm. But the interest is 80 or 90% there's a guy DJing with hooks mm. and 10% how, how's he doing, right? Yeah, yeah. And so when you, when you put in all of this effort to actually become good at something, there's this sort of asymptotic kind of effect that you get where – you're, you're getting diminishing returns from the effort that you're putting in to be good at something. Yeah. And I sometimes think, you know, it's the same with ideas when I discuss, you know, as a speaker now and going on podcasts and things like that. You know, the most interesting part of the podcast is, oh, what happened to you? Like, how mm, did you get mm, the hooks? Mm. Um, and what I'm trying to do is, you know, use that as bait in a way <laughs> to then convey more salient ideas. Yeah. What? So, what are the ideas that you are using it as bait to convey? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think one of the most important ideas is, you know, often people will say to me that I couldn't have gone through what you did, uh, and I don't think that's necessarily true. And I, I would want them to think the opposite that you mm. know people can get through things that they wouldn't think they could, and also. Uh, that you can grow and learn from them and adversity isn't a bad thing. It's mm. almost like a pejorative these days. And having gone through it and seeing how much I've grown from it, I sort of think to myself, like I, I want to put myself through as many stresses as possible now because, mm. you know, because of how much I've grown from uh, going through adversity. I think this is better than university. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly better than university now, but yeah. It rhymes. Yeah, that's true. You could have a rap. Oh, I couldn't. I really, really, <laughs> you really couldn't. I really, really couldn't. <laughs> I appreciate your faith in me. Uh, well, you could have a very bad rap. Yeah, that's true, yeah. I'm going to get a bad rap one day, I can feel it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of things that I've learned through having a disability, whether it be uh, thinking laterally to solve problems and, and that sort of it feels internally as though it's completely reshaped a neural pathway for me such that I think differently about everything. I reframe questions. I reframe negative vicissitudes. I, I know how to manage my expectations better. I adapt quicker. I'm a more patient person. As we were talking about before, you know, being forced to put people at ease with a visual disability that can be so shocking right away, uh, that's a skill that you develop mm -hmm. and... Uh, I'm pretty good at winning people over mm, as a mm. personality as well, yes, probably I as can, a direct result of that. I can fight for that. <laughs> you, you can attest to that personally. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, all of these things, all of these attributes that now make up my personality, my character, and this compendium of knowledge that I've accrued is a direct result of having a disability. How is that bad? Mm, mm. You, you use a lot of stoic concepts in the memoir. I don't think you really talk too much explicitly about stoicism um, but you talk about for example creating your own meaning from things can you say a bit more about that well I mean I think you know creating your own meaning in life or and it doesn't have to be for your, the meaning of life or your entire life but small things that happen 
is really important because you are in line with your own values. And, you know, if you can reframe things that have happened in the past and grow from them and then use that as a meaning to move forward and mm. base upon which what your values are, I mean, that's so much more useful to me than that meaning coming from a third party and you're being told how to act or who is responsible for those yeah. ramifications. It's just yeah. I, I, would, I don't understand the alternative Mm. Yeah. No, what alternative is there? There's yeah. just kind of grievance and yeah. victimhood, you know, which is yeah. not, who, who does that help? Um, yeah, absolutely no one, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I've thought about that recently and it's become somewhat of an epidemic in a way, mm. you know, mm. and um, I don't necessarily think it's the, the fault of the people who espouse it most of the time. I think they are subject to an experiment uh, you know what I mean? That they, to which they didn't consent, largely. But um, and you know, it, it could be something like. Sometimes I imagine that you know, before twenty fourteen, we were all, you know, siloed into these multi generational households, and then at some point, everybody was put out into the soccer field with one another, and the sense of individualism was altered. Mm. I, I often think about. I mentioned in the book uh, the one of the first interactions that I had with Chris, my closest friend and business partner, where we were uh, arguing and it almost came to blows. And we were arguing about music and, you know, I was 14 or something like that <laughs> and would have been 13 or something like that. And, um, you know, I liked rock and roll music because I used to play guitar and he liked hip-hop music and it was a bullshit argument, you know what I mean? But what was interesting to me was that, you know, music became this proxy for your personality or your identity mm. simply because you were too young to have one yet. And there are a lot of aspects to someone's life that can become a proxy for their personality. When you're young, it's kind of excusable. When you get older, something went wrong where there's an experiential deficit for some reason. It's either experiential deficit or... Um, these people have been put in a larger room and and there's a need to kind of, I don't know, differentiate yourself a lot more than there was before, I think. And and then you have the, the, the grievance element which can attach itself to that perniciously, I think, which is that you can get more attention. Mm, yeah. Um, and you can be more of an individual or, you know, maybe – and I talk about this with the support groups um, – chapter in the book where uh, I was taken along to a, an amputee support group and it ended up being nothing more than uh, an endless procession of people telling sob stories about how they'd lost limbs. And obviously all of the stories were very sad, but I got the sense that that was kind of the point. Mm -hmm. And there was a competitive element to it implicit, you know, not um, stated that way, but you could – you got that sense. Yeah, the victimhood um, Olympics. Yeah, it, it was the oppression Olympics to an extent, but it was also you, you could you see how it was inadvertently gamified to an extent, mm. you know, where mm. you're like, this is not helpful to these people, even though they're being, you know, told in not so many words that this is the approach they should be taking to their disability. Um, and, yeah, I don't think it's good for them you know, because if someone is worse off than you, then what are you supposed to not feel bad about what happened? That's not a very good way to deal with your own problems, you know? No, and I think you can't, actually. So, I mean, in theory, um, you could be bullied into thinking your own problems don't matter because other people have it worse off. But in practice, I just find it doesn't work at all. At least for me, it doesn't work. Um you know, I have a close friend whose wife of 20 years died. Um, that's a, and, you know, he is a mess and that's a horrible, terrible thing that happened to him. It's just a really shit thing that happened to him. Um, and, uh, you know, I was upset over a love affair that didn't work out. And you would think that I could somehow say, oh, well, this, my upset over the love affair, that's so trivial compared to what happened to my friend whose wife died. Mm. But no, they're just, yeah. uh, the fact that his wife died doesn't change anything over here in my experience and what I'm feeling. 
I'm no longer upset over it, by it's, the way. But it's even worse it. than that because yeah. if you detract attention away from your own problems, you know, by that kind of sleight of hand, it means that you're not actually dealing with what went wrong with you. Yeah, and I, I just feel it doesn't work. If anything, it's the other way around. It's, you know, what the more bad things happening to people in the world just makes me feel worse. If I'm mm. unhappy myself, it just makes me feel worse. It doesn't... There isn't, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like somebody else's suffering will take away some of yours, etc. That's right. It's just, and it makes no sense to compare. I mean, some people have an objectively very happy life, but they have uh, um, deep psychological problems that they also can't, haven't chosen, can't change, and are severely depressed and even end up committing suicide. You know, yeah. So you can't, you can't um, put a sort of objective scale on people's, on people's suffering. And, and it yeah. doesn't make sense to, you know? I, I think, you know, the point you make about it being a zero-sum game is, is really the key there. Mm. Because I think people, you know, you, you would hear about someone not getting enough respect at work or at home or whatever it is and then someone else might say well what are you worried about there's all these starving children in Africa it's, it's like you know <laughs> yeah, th- there's so- no number of starving children that will get you the respect you need at work yeah there is no number yeah. right yeah and, and all you're doing is you know concerning yourself with more horrific facts about the world that are completely irrelevant and I think that's where comparing oneself to others goes beyond myopic and can actually become deleterious. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that really, I think the thing that most impressed me in the book is how genuinely interested in other people you are. Um, And I think that that is um, unfortunately quite rare and really really uh, valuable and maybe one of the major things in happiness is being able to have a genuine interest in something outside yourself that isn't in any way mercenary it's not what can I get out of this person Mm. um, or how will this thing affect me it's more like closer to a kind of intellectual or emotional curiosity um, which That's just a, yeah. means that life is bigger than what's just happening to you inside you. Mm. Um, and that is very, very enriching. And also, I think, once you realize that, you know, everybody has such a different experience of life that it doesn't matter who the person is, they have something to teach you. You have something to learn from them. You can only get richer as a person mm. meeting more people mm. and really getting to the bottom of what makes them tick or what their opinion is about something. And you have to do that, I guess, a little compassionately as well, you know, with an open mind. And I think we're probably in a bit of a danger zone right now where there's not a lot of that going on. Mm. There's not a lot of compassion for thought. Um, and, yeah, I don't think that leads in a good place because you can't really understand something that you fear or that you don't engage in or that you mm. don't, un- mm. you know, like it's... Yeah. Um, so I, I hope to live my life devoid of that. Yeah. I think it helps if you don't pity the person. And it's it's sometimes it's unavoidable to, to feel just overwhelming pity for somebody. Mm. Um, but I think that, that that tends to suck the oxygen right out of the room. The pity does? Yeah, the, the pity. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, it's very uncomfortable. It's a very uncomfortable thing to sit with. And... It also, it makes you feel like you have no right to talk about your own things. Um, I think it's a it's a very negative emotion. And one of the things is that, um, you know, I don't feel any pity for you whatsoever. Mm. Uh, I think I'm quite envious in some ways. You know, you have a great life. It doesn't do, suck yeah, to yeah. you. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not actually envious. I just, it's just positive. Mm. So, yeah, I think that that is being able to find the positive things rather than looking for the grievance. That's a win-win for everybody concerned. I I want to go back to the idea of the kind of um, lateral thinking and anti-fragility. I think there's a moment in the memoir where you talk about um, you're at Prince Henry Hospital um, with a motley crew of (laughs) cripples and invalids 
and um, you are exploring some of the derelict um, outbuildings surrounding the surrounding the ward. Um, could you tell us uh, talk a little bit about that adventure and what you learned from it? Mm. Yeah, so I became friends with uh, a group of guys that were part of the Spinal Ward because at the time Prince Henry, which no longer exists, was um, largely abandoned except for a couple of wards. One was the one that I was in, which was just a rehab ward, and there weren't many young people there. It was like older people who'd lost legs to diabetes and stuff like that. And At 20 years old, you want to be around younger people. And uh, so I used to go down and hang out with the Spinal Ward guys because they were the, you know, like the younger, funner people that would like jump off sandbanks <laughs> and stuff and then become paraplegics or quadriplegics or whatever. And they're a great group of guys. And, yeah, there was one night that we ended up drinking on the balcony and eating pizzas and stuff and somebody suggested that we go and explore one of the abandoned wards in the hospital. And this place was like Shutter Island. Like it was pretty, probably pretty scary. <laughs> it was old sort of Nightingale ward type uh, affair. And a lot of these places had been boarded up or I think maybe they'd had um, some people living in them, squatting in them or something like that. And we got ourselves trapped in a ward because the door closed behind us, these huge double doors. And one of the guys had unlocked it with a piece of metal because he used to be a mechanic, but he'd left the piece of metal outside. And we had, I think there were about uh, five of us in total. So there was myself, there was the mechanic guy who was a paraplegic. There was a younger kid who was about 18 years old and he was in a, an electric wheelchair that was really high powered. It was, you know, borderline ridiculous to give him that that high powered a wheelchair uh and then there was another guy who used to be a, a bmx rider and he'd snapped his spine and he was a paraplegic but he used to do all of these tricks on his wheelchair and jump off ledges and things like that and then there was another guy who was actually quadriplegic technically but he could function completely below the neck and so he could walk around like an able-bodied person he just couldn't feel anything and so trying to get ourselves out of this abandoned ward was an exercise in utilizing everybody's special uh, skills or talents. You know, for instance, we had to get the guy with the really fast wheelchair to barge a door. The the quadriplegic guy who was um, upright could uh, unlatch another double French door because he was quite tall. And then the BMX guy was the guy that had to jump, you know, from the ledge. But the guy who was um, quadriplegic that could walk couldn't cut his feet on broken glass, so I had to pave the way for that because I, it wouldn't matter if I stepped on broken glass, yeah. right? <laughs> and so everybody in in this uh, event had a role to play to get us out of this thing. And, uh, yeah, it just interested me because I thought, you know, th there's something in that, right? And, and it's not sort of you know, demanding something of the world as I think you had put it in a way, um, but it was finding something that you were really good at by dint of what had happened to you, like mm. a, a niche mm. that had been mm. carved out. Um, and it was also, I call that chapter the pin factory after, you know, Adam Smith's pin factory mm. because it was kind of like the um, division of labor that, yeah. was, that had been <laughs> divvied up in such a fashion that I, I was beginning to understand how things like that worked for the first time. And, yeah, it just gave me hope because I thought, you know, there's quite possibly a role for everyone to play to an extent, or at least most people. It's just trying to work out what that is rather than try and shoehorn yourself into somewhere you don't fit. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I really hope they make a movie out of that chapter. <laughs> I want an entire movie like An entire thing. movie. Yeah, which is um, you and a bunch of uh, a bunch of cripples solving problems and that maybe solving like crimes series, or yeah. doing heists or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I want an entire TV series. Yeah. NCIS, NDIS. <laughs> <laughs> that would be perfect. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you talk about a lot is that having a physical disability also, because you can't do things in a normal way, or not certain things you can't do in a normal way, you have to find a different way to do them. And so it's really stimulating creativity. And you've talked elsewhere about how um, 
disability stimulates, promotes invention. Tell us more about about that. Yeah, so personally speaking, the first time I'd ever worked out that I was going to have to do things differently was when I tried to walk up a curb and realised that I was going to have to turn my body sideways rather than walk up the way that everybody always does because I'd, I'd fallen victim to kind of path dependence in, in a way. And I was in a very unique position. There aren't many quad amputees out there and so most of the things that I was going to have to do there was no blueprint for mm. or roadmap. Mm. You know, even people who have lost upper limbs usually lose one, not two. Mm. And so they get... You know, I, I'm better at using my hooks because I'm forced to use both, right. you know what I mean, which <laughs> yeah. is kind of a little hidden advantage as well. Um, but, you know, so that's what I was talking about before with the, it feels like I've rewired neural pathways. And so the next, you know, I guess more complicated problem that I solved was learning to play the guitar again with hooks. And it wasn't the the engineering behind it or anything like that, Um because anyone could have done that, mm. it, it was reframing the question, mm. right? Yeah. And so th- the question was, do I want to be Jimi Hendrix? Mm. And the answer was, no, I never wanted to be Jimi Hendrix. I wanted to write music. I wanted to play with my friends. I wanted it to be a group activity. I wanted to be able to be involved in a band if I could. And then it became clear that I wasn't trying to design something to become a lead guitarist. I was trying to design something that would enable me to just write music and be in a band and be involved and play live and tick all these books. So it was, it was a complete re-engineering of the actual problem itself mm. to solve mm. that. And then the other thing was, you know, becoming a DJ was something that Chris and I approached from a completely different angle, uh, which was, you know, rather than buy DJ equipment and practice and make mixtapes and network with promoters and buy stupid clothes it was, well, why don't we just start a nightclub and book ourselves as the DJs? And the reason we did that was because we were identifying some false assumptions that were implicit, which is that you need to do all of those things to get where you want to go. Yeah. And then the other false assumptions we were um, trying to identify were that people went to nightclubs to see DJs because of their talent or ability, uh, which... I was always suspicious of. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's always that disconnect between what people say, what people feel, Mm, and then what people mm, do. mm. And so, you know, (laughs) which is why, you know, market research often falls flat. But if we just created an environment that was like a community and we decorated it well and it gave it a personality and a brand, um, that people would, would come eventually. And they came immediately. Yeah. Well, I mean, once people, people want to go where their friends will be where the, the bloke they fancy will be yep. or whatever it is. And so there's a positive feedback loop. Mm. You've got to just kind of get those people in the door and get them to like it and then yep. start snowballing, right? Exactly. And then it lays the canvas for, you know, the the deep end of the pool for you to dive in mm. and actually learn how to DJ properly in front of people yeah. like you should. Yeah. Because if you practice in your bedroom, you might be able to get good at it technically, but you don't have any feedback you know, you don't know what songs people like. You don't know how they like things to the trajectory or the ebbs and flows of a set. Or, mm, mm. Um, and we learned all of that on the job while learning how to mix. So we got real good real quick. Yeah, yeah. You also just don't know, you never know what it is that people are actually responding to. I felt that as a dancer as well, that people would talk a lot about um Specific dancers being especially musical and mm. having a really subtle musicality in the way they were moving and the little tiny things they were doing. And what does that mean exactly? Um, if a dancer well, is musical, yeah, that's rhythmic, well, that, or does um, that was my question too? Yeah. They didn't just mean uh, rhythmic in the sense of stepping precisely on beats and things. Right. It was they meant something much subtler than that. But I eventually came to the conclusion that what they meant was entirely placebo, was entirely imaginary, that it's really, if you like dancing with that person because the physical sensation is really pleasurable, um, to, uh, you know, dancing them with, with them is really nice, they hold you really gently, they move really sw- smoothly, then you have this illusion that they must be really expressing the music mm. also in an especially subtle and... right. 
um, way. And I think probably if you were able to microanalyze, mm. you wouldn't find that that was going on. Yeah. That that's a, a rationalization that it's the rider telling the elephant why yeah, it's dancing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm I'm sure that's happening when people are DJing as well. Absolutely. Yeah. That it it doesn't matter though. If it works, it works. Mm. I really liked so you uh, one thing that um, linked the DJing with um, your keynote speaking uh, was the idea that you're a context creator. I love that. Well, yeah, because you know, going back to the idea of the the nightclub and truly understanding why that club was successful was all about creating context. Mm. You know, as I mentioned before, it's about you know not only just curating the soundtrack, but the personalities of the place, all the artwork had to be cohesive. We made sure that everybody that we employed um, was also not a DJ, but was a friend, you know, and mm. was in our group of friends. And so there was a sense of cohesion about who ran the party at mm. the end of the day mm. when you went down there. The optics were very straightforward and people resonated with that rather than this, you know, the alternative at most clubs was you'd have this really disparate, you know, you'd have the promoter, and then you'd have the booking agent, then you'd have the DJ, then you'd have the door person, and none of them really know each other. It's just it's quite clearly optically a business transaction. And they're surprised that that's how it's treated. I really like that idea of being a context creator. In general, that's like an overarch... I mean, you don't mention it explicitly in the book, but it's like a kind of overarching theme that what you're doing is also putting context to your appearance, your story, etc., um, and um, I think it's, I found it interesting that um, when I went to visit you at your house, you didn't have any special accommodations at home, at least not that I saw. There are many special pieces of equipment designed for um, disabled people that are easier to use, and you don't do that. Instead, you have learned to use normal stuff, um, and... Um, why why did you make that choice? The reason I try not to make my environment adapt to me mm. as much as is possible is because my skills are transferable, mm. but my environment is always transient. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I don't want to have to only be able to use the kettle at my house because it's an adapted kettle. <laughs> yeah. What happens when I go to a fucking Airbnb, right? Yeah. Or, or stay at a friend's a house. Cup of tea? Yeah. So, you know, all I'm doing by adapting my environment to me is further imprisoning me mm-hmm. within my own house. Yeah. Um, but that's that's a great lesson for people who have to adapt to anything is like, you know, when you start doing it really well, when you get good at it, you learn what your skills and limitations are and that makes you better at adapting. Like, you know when you need something in your environment to change mm. versus when you can adapt to your new environment. It's really interesting also um, uh, you, uh, another thing that you've talked about, which is that um, a, lot of, a lot of the adaptations which were originally meant for disabled people um, are now just, they're useful for everybody. Things like voice to text and Siri and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Closed captions, um, certain things are just more convenient, so everybody likes using them. There's a thing called the curb cut effect, which I'm sure you're familiar with to an mm. extent, which is, you know, when the cutouts and curbs were designed for people with wheelchairs, they ended up benefiting parents with prams and strollers or business people with luggage or yeah. workers with carts. Yeah, it's like an un- unintended positive consequence. Or so you, what you've done is you've actually um, inadvertently detected a preference mm. in everyone else. Yes. And it's about – the reason I think it's it's actually such an important way to think about how the world is designed is because when you design for extremes on the edges of the bell curve, the middle seems to take care of itself. And there's a guy called Dan Formosa who um, – is a company called Smart Design in New York City who was contracted by Sam Farber to make uh, a line of kitchen utensils that would be good for someone with arthritis. Mm. Um, and he founded OXO Good Grips, which mm. is now one of the most successful kitchen utensil companies in the world. Like everybody uses them, not just people yeah. with arthritis, yeah. right? Because why would you want a, why would you a want... utensil that's more difficult to yeah, use? Yeah, exactly. And so I think there's there's a few different effects 
um, that you know, and what we're talking about here broadly is universal design. Mm. There's a few effects that interest me. That curb cut effect is one, and then I've identif- identified two others, which I named the luxury effect, which is uh, when you design something for someone with a very specific need or ability, but it becomes a luxury for other people. Like translation is who doesn't like a wide hallway, mm. right? Mm. Or elevators might be one of these because, I mean, elevators were designed for people with, you know, moving furniture initially 100 years ago, whatever it was. But if you went to inspect a luxury apartment building to buy a house and you were met with a set of stairs, I think you'd be keeping your options open. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And even like sliding doors, we now see them in like high-end retail outlets where they're not necessarily needed. So things that were designed for people with specific needs can be a luxury to others. And that's about undercovering preferences. In people yeah. that are existing users of a system. Yeah, and just removing friction from yeah. systems is generally people like That's that, right. full stop. The other mm. one would be a precursory effect, which I believe things like the text-to-speech thing, they, I think they fall into that category, which is that they're technologies that were created specifically for people with disabilities that form the basis upon which new technologies happen, like um, so text to or speech-to-text or something might be the precursory technology by which you use like Alexa mm. or Siri or something like that. And um, this has gone far as back as there was a um, there was a guy called Pellegrino Turi in the in the 18th century, I think in Italy he was an inventor and he was in love with this woman called the Countess Caroline and they had a they had a couple of problems. The first was that they were married um, to other people. And the second one was that uh, was that Caroline was was blind, and so you know, in order to sort of preserve the clandestine nature of their relationship, they had to pass notes to each other. But she didn't want to use a scribe uh, because the jig would be up at that point, right, basically, right. right? So Pellegrino designed this box that used a kind of braille technology mm. um, that would enable her to print a letter, mm. and that was the first thing. That was the first object that ever printed a letter, which then became the typewriter, which oh, then became wow. the keyboard. Yeah. And so those are like precursory effects, which I think they, they happen all the time. Um, and you, you rarely know about them. I think the Segways, one of them was developed by a guy who invented a thing called the iBot, which is like a, a wheelchair that works on gyroscopic technology to raise the user up to eye level. Mm. There's all of these things, like t- all of these technologies that exist. Cool. Because they're developed for people with limited ability. It could be blind people, could be old people, could be arthritis. And I think it's a, a really interesting way for everyone to be looking in design because, well, for starters, you've got an aging population. Uh, I read the other day that apparently every day 10,000 people turn 65 mm. in the baby boomer mm. generation. I mean, you know, if, if all of the endless tech support calls that I have with my parents mean anything. <laughs> I don't think we've designed our wor- worlds necessarily to suit them. Yeah. So I just, yeah, I think it's a it's a fascinating discourse, yeah. You know, one of the things that um, comes up a lot in the book and, and must be a central theme in your life, I guess, is there are two ways in which you could choose. One is to do the things that you would have enjoyed doing had had you never had meningococcal disease or things that you um, anyway like and are interested in, like making music, DJing, etc. Um, and when you do those, you are met with this or sometimes met with this soft bigotry of low expectations mm. that people are. Um, it's like Samuel Johnson says about the woman preaching. It's like a dog walking on its hind legs. You it's not done well, but you don't expect to see it done at all. Um, so people will not be paying attention to what you're doing. They'll be looking at you and they'll be thinking about you, your disability, the hooks, etc. So you can try to shift people away from focusing on that or you can lean into that focus and use that as your platform. And I assume that's more of... I haven't actually listened to your keynote speeches, which probably I should, but... Um, I assume that's more of what you're doing as a keynote speaker. And I would be really sympathetic on a personal level if you had decided, no, I don't want to talk about my disability. I'm constantly telling the same story. It must get boring and old. Um, and I want to be seen for something else. But 
I also kind of feel like you almost have a bit of a responsibility to to talk about that because that is where you have where you're the most unique where yeah, you have absolutely. the most unusual thing to offer. So have you have you shifted over towards more emphasis on professionally on talking about the disability and how has that been? It's interesting. Like I, I was approached about doing a book right after I got out of hospital mm. and I thought that idea was shit because I didn't think it was good enough to write a book that would have lasted the first couple of chapters of this, right, right. right? And so I thought it was worth you know, having some experiences and, and living a life and mm. cultivating the own idea, my own ideas and my own reflection of my existence and then seeing if we- whether I thought those would be useful to other people. Mm. And I guess that that is what – that's probably the impetus for the shift into being okay talking about this and actually utilising and leaning into that angle that you're talking about. Uh, I still struggle with the uh, – you know, 80 or 90% of the interest is the what happened to you story and the ideas that I really want to convey uh, don't get as much traction. Um, but I'll just keep working at it. Yeah. And I'm sure I'll get there. Yeah. I've only been doing the speaking thing properly for a few years now. Uh, so most of my life I've just been in the music industry and I don't – I didn't do anything like that. Mm. Um, so I've only really just started with this journey. Uh, but I think I've got, I think I've got enough ideas behind me now that are useful to other people, and so that's what I am pushing out. And you know, the anti fragility thing is something mm-hmm. that I, I find more of a responsibility to talk about that uh, with the climate currently. Mm-hmm. Um, there needs to be something different out there. I think. What um, do you mean by with the climate? Oh well, we were talking before about the you know grievance climate, mm-hmm. you know, which I I think is probably largely unhealthy, and you would expect to see somebody like me, and coming out and telling a sob story, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> and uh, so there needs to be someone who's doing the opposite to to be the antidote to that, um, and actually say something useful for people mm-hmm. that can potentially help them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that you are do a very good job at conveying some really central philosophical ideas um, about stoicism, about anti-fragility, about kind of the nature of sort of empathy, um, which are uh, central to everybody's life. So it's it's not just about you and your specific story, but you and your specific story provide a particularly salient and good, you know, a hook, as the journalists say, you know. Yeah. A, um, a so you're saying there's in. three hooks. There's three <laughs> hooks. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you where the other hook is. This is a family-friendly yeah, okay. show. Is it though? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not from the ones I was saying. Um. <laughs> but, yeah, I think that you do do a very good job of that. And, and as you know, I've I, I've written about you twice in pieces that have nothing to do with disability, and I find it in general a a really interesting um, perspective on things, um, and a much a kind of wider perspective, mm. which is how ch- how challenge and creativity are linked, mm. um, rather than taking the attitude that the world owes us something and trying to get the world and other people to change to suit us, how we can adapt to where we find our the situation in which we find ourselves. All of that is extremely useful. Um, and so I... Um, you know, this may not be what you want to hear, but I'm glad that you have. <laughs> You're leaning more into the story time mm. side of things, even though it must get boring to tell the same story. Um, it does, but um, I think I get better at doing it quickly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Just through my own motivations of wanting to get past it, I guess. Uh, but I'm still not great at I mean, I'm I'm not as polished as I want to be in speaking about any of it, really. Like, I I, I want to be three or 400% better than what I am now. Um, but I, I would hate to be at what I perceived was my limit, 
of that, mm. you know, no. with nowhere to go. That's fucking bleak. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your plans? Um, what are your uh, future plans in that regard? How are you planning to get to um, up that percentage? Are you well, planning to study philosophy or um, psychology? or? I, 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 do, I do read a lot of it. Mm. Um, I, I don't think it would be necessary for me to engage in formal education, but I, I mean that we live in a time where there's such a wealth of information at our fingertips, excuse mm. the pun, but um, that I would be doing a disservice to the current landscape of technology to actually hand over money to a, an institution. Uh, but uh, I, I engage in that every single day. And yes, I learn a lot, but also I learn more from talking to people and I learn more from working and doing talks and doing podcasts all the time. Mm. Uh, so I just intend to do way more of that mm. um, and probably more of it overseas as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do want to kind of um, – I just want to end by um, talking a little bit about, I think, one of the things which is the main um, attention within the memoir, which mm. – um, you begin by saying, I'm going to just read this little passage. <clears throat> you say, I would like to clarify what this book is not. You are free to interpret this book as you see fit, but it is not intended to be an inspirational story. It is not motivational literature full of didactic prose inciting you to seize your fleeting ambitions. I will not be claiming that all you need to do to overcome challenges is simply to believe. Thank fuck, because I can't stand it when people do that. I hate positive thinking. Um, if you've picked this book from the shelf, hoping for an uplifting dose of inspiration porn, or to be temporarily inspired by the achievements of a physically disabled person, I implore you to return it to the shelf. I wouldn't want you to rob someone else of a good story. What this book is about is how, despite expectations, people often take different paths. And if the reader is feeling generous, reframing stereotypes about disabled people. It's a memoir with a somewhat unexpected trajectory. Um, so I think it's, um, I, I do feel as though I disagree with you mm. um, in that passage. Firstly, because even though you can see that the reader should read it however he or she wishes, mm. It's really not up to you. I think no, it's not up to me. Inspiring. But, I, but, I'm, but that kind of interpretation pisses me off and I'm going to have my fucking word about it. Um, well, I find it inspiring. I think it is a motivational book. Um, it's just that most of the stuff that we think of as inspirational literature, motivational literature in that genre is no such thing because it's too cliched and cheap. It mm. doesn't ring true. Um, it's not useful mm. um, or it's the kind it's either it's either sort of scolding you into um, disregarding your own problems which is never going to work or it's focusing on things which supposedly cause the writer's success which mm. are just actually bullshit like I was really successful because I always wore the same color turtleneck. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bill Gates, who says that. Yeah, that was definitely the reason. Yeah. Um, also, here's my uh, Amazon affiliate link for said turtleneck. It's people who just disregard the role of luck in their mm. success. And they're looking back and trying to spin an, a hero narrative for themselves in yeah. which certain choices they made were the reason for mm. it. Or if they they just became successful, they really believed in themselves and worked really hard and took risks without acknowledging that lots of people believe in themselves, work hard, take risks, and they fail. Yeah, of course. In fact, and how most are those people, people, people supposed to feel reading your book? Yeah. And like, oh, I did all those things, but it didn't <laughs> yeah. fucking work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I get what you mean. Look, there could be an alignment bias for me in such that I just, you know, motivational literature has become such a, a dirty thing to me in my mind yeah that to be associated with it i get it yeah. yeah so it could be that and obviously as you say i can't change how people interpret mm, it mm. i guess yeah i didn't want people who love that kind of shit picking mm, up my mm. book and thinking oh it's gonna be this because yeah. it's not yeah and buckle up <laughs> yeah i mean i guess i think that on the one hand you are unusual um in your personality 
um, you're unusually well equipped to um, to not just deal with what happened to you that's too neutral to actually kind of uh, make an advantage out of it. Um, you you describe it, I think, uh, somewhere as uh, post-traumatic growth, which I think is a lovely mm. phrase. Well, that's a, I didn't coin that, by the way. That's a mm. thing. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it also, um, I'm very aware of the sort of wider implications of your story throughout. So it's not really a... Um, I'm such a paragon, what you need to do is imitate me. It's more about this is just how human beings work. We do adapt to things, and if we can't do things one way, we can harness the creative ingenuity to find another way to do them. And we do come to terms with situations, and we do create our own meaning in our own context. All of those things feel like something that's wider than just applicable to you. And that makes it much more to me, much more motivational than the usual motivational literature. Because it's not just about you. Mm, it's yeah. about what's possible for for human beings. Um, yeah, I think, it. look, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I've i written a lot of these things down because I understand how transferable they could be to mm, other people. Mm. But I don't want them to... Uh, I don't, I'm not I'm lambasting people with these ideas. Yeah. It's just, um, you know, here's something that I've learnt Take from it what you will. I think that's a good place to We're end. All right. Thank you so Thank much for the you. invitation. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette Podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 